0: Welcome to the See Me Now special edition podcast where we interview some of the most interesting people in Western Colorado. I'm Kelsey Coleman and this is my co-host David Ludlam and we are here with Colorado Mesa University Associate Professor of Psychology Nikki Jones. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I want to dive right in because you know looking at your your class schedule here you teach some some really fun, very unique courses
1: here at CMU. Can you kind of talk about um, what those are? Sure, Um, in general, I teach on the courses in our department that are related to diversity related issues. Um, So I teach multicultural service learning in our general psych class, but two of the most favorite courses I teach in a year, and I get this feedback not only from myself, but my students too, is um, psychology of women and human sexuality. And so those are some fun courses to teach. Um, They attract all kinds of individuals who tend to be more willing to explore ideas and more open to thought. And they're really willing to be challenged in a lot of ways, which I just appreciate that type of student that's open to kind of learning about, you know, new things that maybe having grown up in an area that they haven't had much exposure to things like issues related to women or uh, various sexualities that they just come in and, and they walk away really blown away with having one perception when they walked in about a certain topic um, and then leaving completely like eyes open, willing to kind of pay attention to things that are important in these areas and really wanting to like make a difference a lot of times.
2: So it seems like it seems like historically, maybe in our country, there's two things we don't talk about death and sex, but you're talking a lot about sex with students. And do you find that initially it's just you have to get over that initial awkward thing at the beginning and some of them are not used to it and you just you just lance up boil first first thing
1: day one yeah yes, how do you I do that, that how do you lance the boil a couple of different ways um so have you all ever seen the movie varsity blues Okay. So I don't know if you'll remember, uh, there was a clip in that movie where the individual, um, the teacher was teaching about sex education, and she asked the students to come up with all of the names for genitalia and various body parts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I I pull a clip from that, and I start out first thing, I throw that up there. And my students, who are not from the generation when that came out, that was when I was in college, Um have never usually seen this movie. And so they'll go through it. And at the end of this clip, an individual like goes through a list of all of these words that they they um, use for various body parts. And the, the teacher is stunned and I stop it right there. And then I look at my students and they're all like, <laughs> sitting there really stunned with these like deer and headlights. Didn't expect that to come out on day one, number one. Um, but it's a really nice intro into this idea that it's uncomfortable oftentimes for us to talk about. I'm going to go ahead and just put it all out there that's uncomfortable on day one. Well, not all of it. We get to some really interesting things later on. But just to set the tone that Yes, we can talk about this stuff. We're probably going to laugh at times, which we do a lot of laughing. And it's really okay to just be able to be genuine in who we are in, in discussing these issues. And
0: why do you think it's important that, you know, this is a topic that people discuss and they feel open and comfortable
1: with it? There's a whole lot of reasons why we should be able to discuss it. Number one, like being able to discuss like sexuality in general is really good for partners. Okay, so you need to be able to have these conversations with um, potential spouses, partners in the future, current partners, um, because it really is a fabric to a relationship. If it's a romantic relationship to be able to communicate about these things. But even more so, I think, and we talk a lot about how we teach our children about these Issues. Um, there's a lot of shame in our culture around like things of body parts and and sexuality in general. And what that lends to is children growing up thinking that they cannot talk to their parents about these things. And and when they don't talk to their parents about them, where do they get education from? Um, so a lot of times the education for children in our culture, especially now, is from the internet and. That's not helpful. Um, It's only usually going to be harmful and a misperception of these topics. And so I I talk about about this a lot in the class, like we need to talk about these things from really early on in order to be able to make it feel less uncomfortable. We need to have these conversations, oddly enough, like with my children, sometimes around the dinner table. Um, Things will come up about, and my children are seven and four, um, but I think the other day my son said something like, oh, well, when I hit puberty, um, then I'm going to be all hairy and and stuff like that. (laughs) Like just even these simple conversations about the basics, not getting into deep stuff when they're little, you start that now and that lends to communication down the line into adulthood and stuff like that.
2: So thinking about, you know, sexual regressiveness or repression, um, how does that manifest itself in the world in ways that you think could be can be beneficial by having a course like this? Like, how does it practically manifest itself in ways that people might recognize when they think about it?
1: That's a really good question. I, I've received some feedback throughout um, my semesters because I've taught this class now for eight years. Um, and it's usually seniors taking this class. One thing that comes out is at the end of the class, they're like, man, I wish I had this class as a freshman um, because. There's a lot that I didn't know about how to even communicate about what I wanted or didn't want. Um, and so there are times when there's um, non-consensual experiences for individuals, and they just didn't know how to communicate that with someone. And so I think repressing that discussion about it could uh, lend to kind of some miscommunication between two individuals. Um, but I think also... You know, we talk about this and I talk about this in Psych of Women as well, Is there's a l- more sexual repression in general in our culture for women than there is for men. Um, and there's a lot of uh, I'm also a counseling psychologist, so I've worked with a number of women throughout the years clinically on these issues of Um, women not understanding their bodies, um, you know, even sexually, and not knowing what what the whole experience could be versus what they're experiencing with a partner. And so even kind of being able to educate individuals and educating women in general can lend them to having more satisfying experiences with their partners, too.
0: Do you think there's something to that where this is obviously a generalization, but you know, it's women are are always wanting to please you know we're like taught to be people pleasers a lot of the time sure do you think that has anything to do with it absolutely
1: um not only are women um not only are we taught to people please we're also taught to be perfect um it's this idea of been kind of throwing around and playing around with research lately and been talking about in my classes is uh, girls are taught to be brave. I mean, girls are taught to be perfect. Boys are taught to be brave and take risks. Um, And so I do think that notion of people pleasing and like more, I've got to be perfect in this way. And there's only one perfect way to be a partner and stuff like that can lend to this um, lack of education and lack of satisfaction in these experiences too. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Kelsey was kind of talking about like some ways that women might be enculturated or socialized. And this is kind of, I think maybe a controversial topic. I'm wondering how you address it in your classes, if you do, but this, this place where sociology and psychology meet biology and, and are there, how much of this is shaped by biology versus sure. the nature and nurture thing. Maybe that's the wrong question. It's nature and nurture the same things. And how, how do you address that in the, cl- in the classroom or do you?
1: Right. Oh, absolutely. You can't teach a human sexuality course without talking about in psychology. It's called evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, it's the one of the big branches for evolutionary psychologists is this, er, this idea of human sexuality. Um, so, we can't ignore some of the biological differences that we have as men and women. Um, and the evolutionary psychologist would explain it as men have higher sexual drive, higher sexual needs, um, because that means that they can ensure that their genes go on into the future, right? The more individuals that they could um, have intercourse with, then they could ensure more children. Um, whereas women have um, a more investment in kind of having a child, they they spend more time actually gestating a child than taking care of it. And so they really have to choose a partner that's going to lend to probably being more financially stable, lending to more security and safety. Okay, and so that would, um, from the evolutionary perspective, would say that there are differences in just needs from a biological basis. Women then are going to have experiences sexually with someone more so for body responding, whereas men, they would say are going to have experiences more to just be able to ensure their genes go into the future. Now, oh, go ahead. Oh,
2: but doesn't that evolutionary psychology collide in some respects with with psychology writ large in terms of what how we might want to socially engineer certain institutions or something. It seems like that'd be a difficult thing to navigate.
1: Sure, it is. Um, And I'm not the biggest, I don't buy into evolutionary psychology very much in that regard. Like, I believe there's a huge social component and I think, I don't, I've had students that are really big proponents of evolutionary psychology who will arguing me, you know, on this principle, and I respect their ideas, and they have some good points, but I still never go to, I don't think it's 50-50. Um, I, there's a big socialization component, and I do th- I do not believe that the only thing men want is to be able to ensure their genes are um, going to perpetuate into the future. I know <laughs> men want to be able to have Im- intimate and emotional connections with their partners as well. Um, and I know plenty of women who do not want children and who are going to have a lot of sexual experiences that aren't going to be in line with evolutionary um, psychology. So there is this collide, and it's really hard to ignore that the um, nurture piece, which isn't just society, I think our families, I mean, not I think, I know our families have a big impact on us as sexual beings and how we are raised um, and the thoughts we have about this idea our religions, our um, uh, areas of the country in which we live, like all of these things are also going to shape our sexual behaviors as well.
0: And when you're in the classroom, I mean, I feel like, you know, this is a semester course, how, how do you get all of this information into one semester? And, and is it important to, you know, I,
1: I feel like you can't really leave anything out. It's hard. Um, So it's really interesting. What I tend to leave out of the course, the chapters I tend to skip are the anatomy chapters of the human body and sexual reproduction and stuff like that. I assume at the time they are seniors in college that they have learned about the anatomy. (laughs) Like they Mm -hmm. know what the various parts are of the human body and what they are for. What I do tell them is if you have never been exposed to the anatomy and physiology of, you know, the human body, especially in the reproductive regard, then please read these chapters so you understand what I'm talking about. So I skipped that stuff. I don't ever feel like I have enough time in my classes, especially these two classes, to cover everything. One of the reasons is, is that it's such an engaging dialogue that goes along with these topics that my students are regularly asking questions and we're we're going back and forth. I don't cover everything.
0: And having, you know, this is a college campus, you have students from all over the country, the world, different backgrounds, all these different people come in with having Mm -hmm. different experiences.
1: How, where do you start, I guess, besides, you know, that icebreaker? So actually, that's a that's a great question. And I think what um, the way I have the class set up, it lends nicely to starting we start with the history of sex in general. So we start back from like, beginning of time, what we know about when we became sexual beings, and and then we follow it from there throughout. And so what that history reveals is that throughout um, the, t- the recorded time that we have, we tend to be going swinging back and forth on a pendulum of being super conservative about sexual issues to being more liberal. And it's gone back and forth throughout time, pretty much like in an, an amazing pattern that I then talk about like, here we've seen these things and these issues come up, and these people were burned at the stake for having, you know, these experiences. And then we see these people, at times you wouldn't think it, having, you know, lots of experiences. And so I think what that does is that immediately students from all backgrounds coming into the course that sets the tone for them that, you know, we're going to recognize both sides of the coin here. If you're super conservative about these issues, if you're super liberal, we're setting the stage by just t- talking about about this is where we've been in history. And so we're open to talking about all of these things.
2: When you think about how sexuality has evolved over time, and you, I assume you, you probably cover Rome and Greece because of the stereotypes associated with those oh, yeah. cultures at that time. But and today, though, there are certain cultures that I think most people would probably agree are highly regressive sexually, way more so than, than anything that we see here in the U.S. And what causes like hyper-regression Historically, and even now, in your opinions, is it, is it, it what, what factors go into that?
1: Um, you know, a common theme that goes throughout history and what I've seen, you know, more culture. So I think about a culture like Afghanistan being mm-hmm. one of them, um, which is pretty, pretty uh, regressive in terms of sexuality. Um Oftentimes a common thread is religion and religious ideology. If, if we did not have religion mandating certain things in certain times, in certain cultures, it's more important. In certain cultures, it's less important. I do see that that coincides with historically when we've been more conservative and right now culturally when we are more conservative. You see areas that tend to be more agnostic like um The Netherlands, um, extremely open sexually. Um, In the United States, we're more Protestant of a nation still, not as agnostic, although we might be moving that way in terms of numbers from what the stats show, but we still are a Protestant nation. Um, And so we see that on one hand... It's like a mixed message, especially in the United States, like all the media showing everybody's doing it all the time in all these ways. But when you ask people, there's still a lot of conservative values around one's sexual identity and sexual behaviors. So religion is one of the things that I can see. And I have not researched this and I'm not a historian to know if there are other factors, but I know that's a big one.
2: So, uh, Nikki, before we move on and also talk about another fascinating subject matter that you teach, the psychology of women, I wanted to go back to just one um, question that was lingering in my mind about this um, collision that you described between evolutionary psychology and maybe other parts of the discipline. But this idea when people, I think you said it's not 50-50, and you often hear people ask the question and frame it as nature versus nurture, when it seems to me that perhaps it's the wrong question and that enculturation, socialization, Um, the nurture is an extension of our biology at the, at the most fundamental level from an evolutionary standpoint. And so why are the disciplines bifurcated? Why are they separated? Why do you have one over here and one over here when the nature nurture is kind of the same question in a way, like, I don't know. I'm not asking it quite right, but.
1: I think I get what you're you're asking, and I would agree, I think it's nature and nurture um and i it's I don't think it should be an either or, and so I regularly talk about that in my classes. The reason why we see this struggle between all of these ideas is because the field of sexology, that's the name of this field, is completely fragmented. Um, And so you have the neuroscientists and the biologists doing all of their own research. You have the sociologists and the anthropologists doing theirs. Psychologists are over here. And we don't have a, um, a really... fluid way of connecting all of our research and all of our information. And I talk about this as one of the biggest problems with our research in this area of sexuality is that we are completely fragmented. And so, of course, you have the biologist and neuroscientist and the physiologist that like, hey, they are gung ho. It is their way. And this is this is our camp over here. So we're going to advocate for our camp. You have the sociologist all the way over here. Right. And anthropologist on the other side, I would say, kind of saying, no, it's it's all, you know, the nurture piece. And I, I, I imagine psychology is in the middle. Um, and I feel like we are pulled regularly between the two sides. Um, and so oftentimes we can have some of our research that goes in this camp and that camp. But it has to do with this fragmentation in general that we don't have an actual kind of field of study that's just dedicated to this in general. That makes sense. And you have your Ph.D. in counseling
0: psychology. I do. And so when, I know you can't say anything specific, you know, about what you talk about when you do counseling, but what are, what are these, these themes that you're seeing over and over again? And, and, and I know we're not going to fix it on this podcast,
1: but is there some advice that you can give? Um... Well, so good thought. (laughs) So at present, I only work with um, women in my practice that I have on the side. So it's unfortunate that some of the themes I see is seeing a lot of individuals with sexual trauma. Um, And so I I actually worked with us in a specialty area in my doctoral program on working on this issue with women and learning how to become better at doing this work, which is really delicate work to be done. I see that. Um, I also see a a lot of women um, struggling with their sexuality, too, in in the ways of not being satisfied. So not questioning their sexuality or or anything like that, but not necessarily being satisfied some of them. Now, some of that could be because of the higher rate of individuals I see who have trauma. Um, And we know that can impact um, one's satisfaction, but it doesn't always have to. Um, And so I don't assume if somebody comes to me with a history of trauma, and when I say trauma, I mean childhood sexual abuse and or um, sexual assault as an adult, uh, an adolescent and an adult. So... We talk about that, and I don't assume that somebody has struggles within their you know, sexual life um, just because they have a, a passive trauma, but sometimes that can lend to it. Um, I do see that a lot of women also that I work with may not be as satisfied in that area or let me take it, let me walk it back. Maybe not, not satisfied in that area, but are just so tired that they don't (laughs) care as much as maybe they did before they became mothers or before they were working full time as well. And so there is the pressure of, I wish I wanted to, but I just don't want to right now. And so I think those are the common themes in this area of sexuality that I see in working with women.
2: Do you enjoy um, keeping... Sort of the that connection with people and the clinical side of it, and, and does it help you become a better teacher when you engage in that?
1: Absolutely. Um, I I took about five years off from doing clinical work. I, I When we first um, moved here and I started teaching here, I actually worked with the college students for two to three years on the side, um, one day a week while I taught the rest in what used to be our counseling center. It's not what it looks like now. So I did that for two, I believe, two to three years. And then I had my children and I needed to take some time off. Um, my son, who I was pregnant with, almost bursting and with seeing my last client before I took a break. At that time, I said, I felt like he just took all the empathy out of me. I was getting to a place where I wasn't being as good of a clinician that I know I can be. And I think it was all going to him. It's really weird. And he's the most empathetic, sensitive human being that I know. And he like sucked it. He he took it for a little (laughs) while. And then I had my daughter. And then I realized I'm missing that side. And once I was able to um, kind of Breathe again after having two children, two small children. And so coming back, it really does inform a lot of what I'm talking about in both of these classes. But I also teach our psychological um, interviewing class too, which talks about how do you do that first clinical interview. And getting back into doing those again, it reminded me of the things that I was forgetting to talk about and stuff like that. So, absolutely, I feel like they're funnels. I mean, both of them are funnels for each other. My clinical work really funnels my passion into the classroom. And these issues come up that I'm directly working on with a client um, really gets me fired up in the classroom. And then this research that I'm now able to stay up on more um, with these two subject areas informs me and in my work with my clients as well. And so it, it it's a direct relationship. And I think it's pretty reciprocal for sure.
2: Nice.
0: You're doing really important work, you know, on campus and off campus. But I want to talk a little bit about sexual assault prevention on campus because you're really involved in that aspect, too. And I know you're doing, you know, studies to figure out kind of what what what's happening, what are
1: what are students thinking, what are they going through, what have they seen? Um, Can you kind of talk about about that a little bit? Sure. So my work in this area, as I mentioned, when I was in my doctoral program, I did a lot of clinical experience and work with uh, sexual assault trauma and treating clients and stuff like that and got into some of that prevention work when I was there. Um, And that really stayed with me. And I believe it was um, seven years ago, two of my students in my very first human sexuality class approached me and said, we want to start this club. Um, And it doesn't exist on campus. And that was sexual assault prevention. Club. And so I agreed to be the advisor and started this club. And there's been times throughout, it's a it's a hard club to get members <laughs> I was going to say, I, lo- I love that your students were the ones that said, hey, we want this club. They came to me and I was like, let's go for it. Um, but in the first couple of years, we might have had some loyal following of about 10 individuals who would come to club meetings. And you could think about like, whoa, what amazing club meetings are you having, <laughs> right? Um, so it's kind of a depressing subject to maintain, I think, momentum in a lot of ways. The ways we have shifted to try to maintain momentum on campuses to doing more stuff about Cultural wide on campus. How can we impact the culture around these issues? Um, and and so uh, we've been doing work um, in a variety of ways on campus since probably you know, for the past five years, trying to make a broader impact. Let's try to change the culture around um, se- not not only sexual assault, but this idea of healthy healthy relationships is also an important part of our mission statement as well. More recently, what we have done, you may have seen it, is we've um, encouraged the "It's on us." national campaign. Um, basically for two or three years now, we've encouraged people to sign the pledge. Like if you see something, do something about it. If you're directly witnessing somebody who's potentially going to be harmed, step in and do something about it. And then that, that, that lends to this idea of bystander intervention that um, it's my hope that we can, can kind of get to a, a more widespread place with that.
2: Well, Kelsey had talked about like the work you're doing on campus for prevention. And then you said that you're a lot of your approach is to look at cultural issues that could not only benefit campus, but I imagine get to the heart of the matter, the root, the root causes in, in in the literature that you look at or in the work that you're doing. Do you see a direct connection between the substance abuse and alcohol and sexual assault here, but also culturally? And why is that not often at the forefront of it? Because it seems like it's so intricately evolved just anecdotally but does the literature say anything about that absolutely
1: 100 percent. that's what's so frustrating about also doing this work is knowing that if you took this one component out of it you would probably decrease the number of assaults that occur especially on college campuses so i'm just going to talk about it in terms of college campuses that because that's where most of the research is um and so there's some there's um You know, there's a lot of stats that point to like the person is at the highest risk, usually females. And I want to I want to make sure that when we're talking about assault on campus, we acknowledge that men are assaulted as well, Um, because men are their rates aren't as high for a couple of reasons. Number one, it tends to be more men doing the assaults to women. But secondly, there's a stigma around men being assaulted, and if they were to come forward, I mean, there is already one to women, but it's much so more so for men. So if they were to come forward and say something happened to me. They're, they're shamed even more a lot of the times in their eyes. So men get assaulted, but we know around ninety-five percent of assaults happen to women, and it's usually men ninety-five or so percent of the time are doing it to women. And so if I just defer to women as being assaulted, it's just because statistically that's more likely who is. But I want to acknowledge men get assaulted as well. Um, so we know that in the first six weeks of coming to a college campus, you are at the highest risk for being assaulted than. Um, Um, Any other time in one's life, even compared to women who are the same age, 18, 19 year olds who are not on college campuses, they, they are significantly less likely to be assaulted. What's the kind of factor that leads to this? Oftentimes it's alcohol use and partying going on in the first six weeks of college. And so absolutely alcohol is. The biggest risk factor, I think, on college campuses towards somebody experiencing a sexual assault. There's a whole host of reasons for it. So, an individual is more likely to be assaulted if they are inebriated because perhaps perhaps they're so inebriated, like they're blacked out and literally don't know what's happening and then wake up the next morning and realize, whoa, wait, what happened? I did not consent to this because they are blacked out. But also um, other things, our judgment in general, whenever we drink, it impacts our frontal lobe. Um, it goes in there and the frontal lobe is where we have impulse control and our judgment and our ability to make decisions housed in that area. And so um, maybe like making, you know, decisions to stay or something like that at a party when friends are trying to get you to leave and you're like, no, I'm fine. And I'm not in any way saying this is that individual's fault um, for why they are assaulted because they still should not be assaulted. But I'm talking about the, the ways alcohol can lend to these situations to occur. On the flip side, the individuals who assault oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes are also inebriated too. So we go back to that impulse control and judgment again and think about what's most common here in my discussion. With student services in terms of sexual assaults that are reported typically uh, in, are, have to do with alcohol involved. And so that individual who has engaged in assault, oftentimes the perpetrator, um, they oftentimes are inebriated as well, which lends to not so good thinking there and not maybe listening to a person's boundaries. How do you tackle that or address that, you know, besides saying don't drink or drink responsibly? What what what's the solution there? Well, if I had that answer, I would probably not be sitting here. I would be a billionaire. <laughs> um that's that's a really great question. Um, I, I think it comes in a, a couple of ways. Number one, we can't tell people not to drink because we know what that den- lends to is rebound. I mean, people are going to go buck wild if you say, nope, no drinking allowed. Like, we know that's not the case. The countries where drinking-
2: Is, is buck wild a psychology term?
1: Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> my psychology okay. term. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Just clarify. Um, but we know the countries where you're not so restrictive on alcohol use actually have much more responsible alcohol use and lower rates of addiction and and, in substance problems. Um, So if you tell people no drinking, that's problematic. Um, One of the ways is this work that, you know, I've been doing some research on lately on campus is bystander intervention. So it's not going to get it all by any means. But we know a lot of this is happening oftentimes and can start at parties. So individuals being left at parties by their friends, their friends just left them and they're the only individual there. Um, Individuals allowing their friends to get... Um, just absolutely wasted, another psychology term, um, absolutely wasted. And, and then letting, you know, not saying anything whenever they're going off into a room with someone else. So part of it is changing the culture around intervening when somebody looks like they cannot make good decisions, both ways. If somebody has a friend who looks like they're going to take advantage of someone, we need to step it up. And we need to have people who can step in and stop that individual from harming someone else. It shouldn't just be about rescuing, and I'm doing that in air quotes. Um, It shouldn't be about rescuing the person who's going to be harmed. It should be about stopping the person who's going to harm. So I think a good idea would be to have a designated sober individuals at parties. Like if we were going to say what could change this is having a designated sober person at parties to be able to be on the lookout, a a designated bystander, and to be able to stop these things from happening, because the problem is, is usually a lot of the times a lot of people are drinking and not paying attention, right? Um, So I think that that would be one thing, you know, back whenever I was a kid is when they started the campaign friends don't let friends drive drunk Um, and that initially was laughed at there was these uh, commercials where people would have like hands and and put it out and then take the keys and stuff and it was laughed at but what our research shows is that once that campaign really got like accepted culturally within our country I mean come on is it okay if anyone in here would see a friend that was getting ready to go drive drunk what would you do right Mm -hmm. you would stop them well it took a while to get that going. And what we saw is a decrease in drunk driving rates after that. And so I like to kind of parallel this to friends don't let friends hook up drunk. Like, <laughs> un, uh, you know, and, and I don't want to say that like lightly, but it's kind of the same thing to be able to stop potential assaults, make sure somebody is sure, stuff like that. Yeah. So
2: like, it's it's good to have somebody with all their faculties around all the time when you're, when people are drinking. <laughs> I know that's good, so realistic, yeah. isn't it? So, uh, Kelsey, are we ready to talk about the psychology of women?
0: Let's do it. Okay.
2: So as the, the guy, can I start off?
0: You can. Okay.
2: So Dr. Jones, <laughs> I know you have to be called Nikki, but Dr. Jones, because I've started there's some literature that you can say, I, I wanted to ask a question based on, I, th- I think how I experience the world. And then you can tell me if it's a result of like male bias or if there if it's the literature supports this, but it seems like as we experience the world, men and women are more the same than they are different. But maybe where they're different, they're really different. Is that true? And the psychology of women, why is it important to have a class that's designated to the psychology of women if the differences aren't stark?
1: That's a great question. Um, So I'll start with the last question first. People often ask me, especially in my classes, it tends to be the men. In the class, it so would be like, well, if we have a psychology of women class, why don't we have a psychology of men class? Yeah, And I'm like, hey, I'm all for it. I encourage people to do a men and masculinities class in, in this institution. I just can't teach more classes than I'm already teaching. But I also say that psychology, all of the psychology classes that we have have been basically about men. So the standard of psychology we have has been written by and perpetuated by men. And so oftentimes, that's why it's important to have a psychology of women's class in Mm -hmm. general. So that's important. You are correct in that we are more similar than we are different. And so it's really hard for me to answer this question, honestly, because um, when we think about men and women, we want to imagine them in these nice boxes on each end of the spectrum and they're like their own little stereotypes and they're completely opposites. But the reality is, is that we know that we've probably all fall somewhere on what's known as the gender spectrum rather than, you know, kind of being just all 100 percent masculine or 100 percent feminine feminine. Um, And so we have a lot of more similarities, because there's certain parts of me that I'm very masculine. Um, And so like, I was raised by a single father during my adolescence, I I grew up, he was a construction worker, I grew up on construction sites. Um, I love to build things, I like to do woodworking projects. I, my husband regularly tells me like, you think like a man, you know, (laughs) Um, and so to sit here and say you and I are direct opposites. I don't think that that's a, a an accurate statement because maybe I look feminine on the outside internally, I have a lot of masculine qualities. Um, and so I, I just don't think that we are as opposite as people think that we are. I guess that is perfect for this question, like what does it mean to be a woman, right? (laughs) we don't have enough time to talk about what it means to be a woman. so this is a great question that comes up in the class all the time. And I ask students this, like, what does it mean to be a woman? And what does it mean to be a man? Like, even though it's a psychology of women class, I'm regularly contrasting against men within this course. And so we talk about it all the time. Things that come up on the board, I do this activity is, oh, well, to be a woman, it means you're nurturing. Um, you are domestic. You are dependent. You are, um, you know, reliant on others. You're passive. Um, they come come up with all of these ideas. And then the contrast is the, you know, when they come up, what does it mean to be the man? It's usually the opposite of it, right? And so what I kind of encourage them to do is to think about like, if you were to look at that board and all of those things about what it means to be a woman, how many of those qualities do you actually possess? And usually it's one or two or three, whatever. How many do you possess on the men's side then? And they're like, oh, a lot of these. So what does it actually mean to be a woman? We have no real definition of what it means to be a woman in today's day and age. Since I would say the 1960s to the 70s in the feminist movement, the more modern um, feminist movement um, at that time, it really has shifted what it means to be a woman. So what it means to be a woman is a human being who likely is going to be educated more so than a man. Now you have higher rates of women in higher education than men. Um, so it means you're probably going to be educated, you're probably going to have a career since we know about I think it's around 80% of women have some sort of um, kind of career, whether it's part or full time flex, take time off for children. So you're more likely you're probably going to have a career. Um, and then what it means to be a woman is it's, it's really difficult for a lot of women. And I don't want to negate the pressures that are, occur on men, because there's a lot that occur on men too, but there's pressures about then um, getting married, having children, um, being the perfect mother, um, and not only being the perfect mother, being able to do it all. Um, And so there's a stereotype on women, especially women in their 30s, 40s, and then 50s, that you are juggling everything and you're juggling it without batting an eyelash, perfectly groomed, manicured, pedicured, and everything, and, and you don't struggle at all, which is not the reality. And so I say that's what it means to be a woman is to have a lot of pressure to live up to, but not being able to do so, which oftentimes lends us to feeling kind of pretty bad about not being able to do that.
0: Can we talk about feminism for a little bit? Sure. I I feel like, you know, you hear the word or the term feminism and you get a whole different bunch of descriptions and definitions yep. and it's across the board. So what, how do you tackle that? What do you guys talk about? Where does it go?
1: Oh, it's a great one. You should just take my class. I will. Um, I want because to. Because this is another activity we do in my class is I have my students go out and just ask five to, I'm very low stakes research, ask like five to 10 students, what is feminism? Um, and just to get their idea and their reaction, and it has to be five men and five women. And I asked the students to take an inventory about whether or or not, they hold feminist beliefs and they go through the inventory at the end. And then it says, do you describe yourself as a feminist? Um, in the end, when looking at their belief systems, they um, most students believe in feminist beliefs. Uh, ultimately, what is feminism? It's equality. It's equal treatment between not only genders, but ethnicities, religions, everything like that. So not only is it equality, but it's also empowering women to have choices and stuff like that. So when I ask the students who identifies as a feminist, it's usually about three or four out of 30 who actually identify as a feminist versus have feminist beliefs. So then we talk about why is it. And so histo- can you say that stat one more time? Um, so out of 30 students, maybe three or four will identify actually as saying, yes, I'm a feminist. Raise their hand. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That stat? Yep. yep. Okay. <laughs> um, and so... We then lend to why is it that you hold these feminist beliefs in that women should be treated equally, have similar opportunities, all of these things, and shouldn't be controlled, you know, all of this stuff, but you won't identify it, it as such. Um there's two things that come up. I was just talking with some colleagues actually about this earlier today um, in that this generation right now has this aversion I noticed to labels in a lot of different ways. Oh, I just don't like labels. And so I I feel that partly it's because of this lack of wanting to be labeled as something is what drives it. But secondly, let's um, look at then the history of the more modern feminist movement um, in the 60s Um, and In the press that those individuals got. So, Usually, what was shown of these individuals was things that were salacious, um, kind of bra burning, um, protesting beauty pageants and stuff, because that's what sells, right? And so, the idea of what feminism was and back then has perpetuated still to today to to um, kind of give individuals, I think, a bad rap for actual ideas they have
2: so this idea of classical feminism and kind of our aspirations for creating an egalitarian society um, assuming in a hypothetical world that we get better at doing that and making things more fair for for women and for for all people when you get to that egalitarian state w- earlier we talked about um, men and women are more the same than they are different but if you had if you got to that place what would the differences that still exist be going back to that I don't know, the biological parts of it, or what differences do you see in the margins that are clearly based on biology or evolutionary psychology, those things that we talked about before?
1: Well, number one is we cannot deny the physical differences between men and women in general. You always have exceptions to the rule. You have women who are larger than men, stronger and stuff. But in general, we know that physical differences are still going to be there. So certain jobs that would require physical attributes would probably lend to having more men than them than women. Um, And so being able to lift so much weight and stuff like that, like firefighters, other. I couldn't go be a firefighter. I'm a smaller stature individual, I have hardly no muscle mass, you know, so there's just things that my body cannot do. So we cannot deny physical differences that would lend to probably different occupations and still um, lending to individuals doing certain things differently. Um Men, of course, cannot have babies. Um, And so no matter what, even though we are at a place of ultimate equality, we still are going to have women who are going to be having. Well, in the future, who knows? They might grow them in incubators. I don't know. But women were probably more likely to still be having the babies, um, which is still going to. Put them at a a disadvantage, and I don't want to say this in a wrong way, but a disadvantage in some ways in terms of career growth and trajectory. Unless we change the way we're looking at um, attributes of workers, right? Which in an equal world, maybe we will. Then at that point, Um, in an equal world, we I think we would see more men choosing to stay home than women because we would base it more on skills than on necessarily like gender stereotypes about who works. When I think about the biological aspects, though. to women, like even thinking about in the workforce and the research we have now, we think about women leaders and female leaders are going to be seen as probably more nurturing than men. So evolutionary psychologists would say that women are more nurturing because that you have to have that to keep a child alive, right? Intend and, and befriend and take care of others, more interpersonally oriented. So I think that you would see still, I don't know... We can't argue that there's socialization to the nurturance piece, too, for a whole variety. But if it is more biological, then I think that you would probably see still maybe women having higher rates of nurturance. Um, The independence piece is coming to be more equal already. So you're probably going to be seeing equal levels of independence um, and not so much dependence. And if you're equal, you don't have that financial um, dependence anymore that many women still have. We should also then see poverty rates be equalized between men and women then too. So right now, women disproportionately are the ones who are in poverty in this country compared to men. Um, Single mothers, single households with mothers are the ones who um, are likely to be in poverty. So I would think that you would see that poverty rate shift and have equal numbers of men and women in poverty, which we would then think biologically could lead to a whole health, health problems that would be more equalized too.
0: I'm afraid we're running out of time. I feel like we could keep going on and on and on, um, but do you want well, to say anything before we close out, David?
2: perhaps like you you said that you wanted to extend um, sexual assault prevention from beyond campus to culture, and if you were going to like extend it from culture to the globe, you look out across outside of um, the West say or um, you know modernity and this place is still a pretty horrible place for women in almost all places in the world, Mm -hmm. except for where you see modernity or culture of the West, whatever you want to say. Like, how do you extend it from our culture externally without, and I mean, does it, do you play a role as a teacher here in helping do that? Like, I mean, in our little place in the world, making the world, I have two little girls, so I'm interested in this. Sure. Making the world better for women here, but everywhere, like, how do you do that? As a put you on the spot. Last that's question. A huge question. We <laughs> <laughs> have, okay, yeah, have as much time as you want. Yeah, have as <laughs> much time as you want.
1: Well, I like that you ask. Like, even how does it start in the classroom? That's the that's the secret to my passion in teaching. Um, a lot of these classes is as a as an educator. It's about knowledge. I yeah, I, I'm supposed to impart knowledge. But what's more important important to me is that I'm imparting. Um, A passion in my students to make a difference. Um, And so most of them leave these two classes. It's the the highest rate of feedback I get. This is my favorite class I've had since being here. You've like impacted me so much that I want to make a difference. So I've had students go into graduate programs to work on issues related to um, human rights. I have a student applying right now for um, a master's in human rights and um, social justice. Um, So one is like... getting those individuals to start kind of plant the seed that let's make this world a better place. And and they can do it in a number of ways. They're also really savvy, much more than I am. I'm not even on social media right now, actually, um, at spreading this information in social media. So I share articles with them that I think that they then share with their friends, um, their parents. They tell me about sharing information with their parents. We talk about, I mean, this generation who's in college right now is really great about wanting to make a global impact too, I think it's the most global generation we probably have had. And so um, having students go over and volunteer in some of these nations I talk about where some of this, uh, uh, these atrocities occur, that can occur. But how do we solve the problem worldwide? I
2: I thought that's a pretty good answer. You're saying I, export good okay, people. Okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I answered That you teach them. There Yeah, we go. yeah that was I, good.
1: I don't yes, know how to make yes. a bigger impact than just exposure to, that, that's, that's my way of saying it, exposing them to these worldwide atrocities.
0: Well, and I think, too, you know, you mentioned, Nikki, that you have a son and a daughter. And, you know, being a parent plays a big, David, you have two daughters. Being a parent plays a big role in that, too, where no matter Where people land on that spectrum, you know, for women's rights, they have a play to, you know, their actions matter, their words matter, and and teaching your children that.
1: Absolutely. And I talk about that in both of those classes is what are we teaching our children? Um, And so it, it happens in small things every day, even with my son, like wanting to wrestle with my daughter, but she's screaming to the top of her lungs, no, you know, and we're like, Noah. Okay, she said no once. You need to respect her, and we have to regularly say that to him because he's still growing and it's still his little sister, and he wants to just beat her up. But we're also teaching him these themes of if somebody says something, you respect it, um, and so we we do it by teaching him about just respecting others, and that lends into nice conversations with him that I've already had at the age of seven with him that sometimes women are not treated well, um, and we need to make sure that if a girl or a woman tells us no know, and and we could maybe be doing something that makes them uncomfortable, we go ahead and we stop and we respect that. So I'm already planting those seeds in my children, um, very young and having those conversations, bringing it all the way back to human sexuality here with my children at very young ages, that inappropriate touch, you always tell mommy and daddy, you know, um, you should, you know, you always have these discussions. So it goes back to that communication piece, too. And one of the biggest things that my students walk away from the two classes is we talk about, um, they give me the feedback that I'm going to make sure I do different than perhaps my parents did. I would say... Maybe 80% of the students say, my parents never talk to me about any of these issues. I was just actually just grading sexuality and gender papers just now. And um, the eight women I've already graded, a few of them, parents never talk to me about anything related to what it means to be a woman or my sexuality. And so this generation is learning communication is key. We should communicate, not shame. We should learn how to have these discussions. And I think that is what they've come to. I guess that's ultimately um, when we say, what do we do with this word feminism? They ultimately come to, we should just get rid of the word feminism. We should come up with a new word for it because most of us believe in this. And then we also need to teach our children these principles. So it's not something that people think is a bad thing. So it's the education component too.
0: Well, thank you so much for the work you do. It's very important. And we're glad that you were here today to chat with us about it.
1: Well, thank you for having me. really enjoyed it.
0: It's a See Me Now special edition podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, and my co-host, David Ludlum.